Hello everyone, so I decided to do something new in the history of my podcasting. I decided that I need to do much more episodes off the top of my head, as well as Just stick to using my second edition Webster's New World Dictionary and Thesaurus when I absolutely need to keep my vocabulary limitless. But for the most part, I'm going to be talking on top of my head. I'm starting that tradition right now, actually, because I recognize my days of constantly relying on art well I'm not gonna say relying on articles what I'm saying is my days of using a lot of articles as well as publications from other people to put into my own words those days are over every now and then I'll use an article and every now and then I'll use a publication but I said to myself since this, this is the podcast I'm hosting for us that I need to just speak off the dome. And, and when you hear me pause, um, that means that I'm using my Webster's to help me out. Yes, I do have an expansive vocabulary, even though I don't use Webster's, but it's much easier to keep the podcast going by always having my Webster's at hand. So without further ado, this is the new tradition I'm starting Right now, for this last reason, I'll get into the topic at hand for the episode. I also feel that I am my most authentic by speaking into the atmosphere because it's the flow of tree is much more soothing and much smoother. So, a new year, new podcast beginnings. Let's go straight directly to the topic ahead for this episode. I want to talk about the last parts of my boyhood as well as the last parts of my early young adulthood. Late teens, early 20s, so let's talk about it. So we'll start with childhood, then I'm going to work my way up. So my being a child in the time of the crime world... One of the things that I remember from that time that in all my memories actually happened was I remember seeing some women try to run from me because they heard about my crime boss reputation. And I'm five years old. I was never a crime boss, as you already know. But I'm having to say it again because of new listeners. There were women who ran from me. And I called out to them as they were running. And... They came to me, but they would slow walk to me with visible fear in their body language and in their facial expressions, as well as their hand movements. They were very jittery, shaky, and trembling as they're walking to me slowly, and their eyes were looked like they fell. It looked like they fell on the ground, even though. It did fall on the ground. It's it's a euphemism for they were that scared. Their eyes were bulging out of their sockets. And I remember telling them kindly to walk normally and that I would and I and I was assuring them, reassuring them repeatedly that I would not verbally harm them nor non-verbally harm them and that they would not ever quote-unquote disappear usually 
the term disappear in the crime world is a euphemism for murder. Or it could be a euphemism for kidnapping. So when they came to me, they went from being scared to being at peace, at ease. They went from shock and horror, as it's commonly said, to being delighted and relaxed. And so they inquired about me about why why are the streets saying certain things about me? And I clarified the misconceptions. I said, actually, I've never been a crime boss, never have, never will be. And that um, these were street women. Um, some street women are of the streets. Some are in the streets, but not of the streets. So some do the the wrong, the lawlessness of the streets. And some are affiliated with that world, but they don't commit crimes. It's like I know of criminals, but I don't commit crimes. And I don't commit crimes with criminals. So those are the two variations of street women that I was encountering. And the crime boss reputation came as a result of, as I've said many times in the episode, but I got new listeners. Oh, he can order murder. He can order violence. He can order theft. You know, the streets gave him that power to order these things to happen to to anybody. And I reassured the street women that I don't order any, I don't do, I don't order any of these things to happen if they're saying that it's because of what the criminals who surround me are saying. And I said, well, actually, I'm a very sweet person. And they instantly agreed because when I called out to them, I didn't yell mean-spiritedly, it was a compassionate yell. And they walked slowly because they were still nervous. And that's when, by the time they actually approached me, they felt calmest. So I was able to tell the street women, look, um, you don't have to, you know, I'm hurt when, when you ran from me, that hurt. And they apologized and they said, I, you know, I couldn't help but to run because when I hear a lot of people saying something, you know, I felt like I couldn't help but to protect myself. And I said, well, I, um, you know, that I will protect you. You don't have to feel unprotected. And so a lot of times in the streets, because street women were like, well, he's not this fearsome, violent, murderous character you're making him out to be. And they approached me, they were shocked at my size. They're like, people make it seem like you're this very tall, very big, booming voice sounding wrestler looker type, but wow. They would look at my, they would hear my voice and go, oh my God, you're nothing that the streets, you're you're not like anything the streets are saying. And I did tell them, well, because some people in the streets try me, that's why I, a lot of people who are there are going around saying this in the streets. Try me means trying to attack me. So I have to show that tough side, but normally... I wouldn't show that side. And the street people, women understood. They're like, so the street women, more of them started becoming protective of me because they're like, well, we don't want Antonio to show his tough side because we, we're so in awe of his nice side. We want to have him show his nice side as much as possible. So one of the reasons why I survived organized crime because street women were felt believed every word I was saying they're like well he's not coming off gangster on me so if he had to show his gangsters because yeah I was fucking with him and so 
what I remember was with the women, street women, it was like, you know, there was this thing in the crime world. In my last remaining two to three months in the crime world, I did not show that tough side as much. Scratch that, four months. Okay, the last remaining four months of my time in the crime world, I didn't show that tough side as much. It kept going down over time because more people in the streets started leaving me alone. The people that wanted to try me is understood don't because even the crime was like, you know, I like it when Antonio's nice. I, I really don't like when he had to show that side. It, it freaked me out. It bothered me. So, so over time, my tough side experiences kept decreasing in my typical, well, atypical in all the right ways, nice side kept, I got to show more of my real self more and more and more and more and more because the street women, you know, were like, man, I felt so bad. I ran from him. I should have just talked to him without running from him. And, um, the street, and I even told the street women, I really don't like having the power to order these things to happen. You know, it was just, you know, the criminals gave me this power. I didn't ask for it. I didn't think about it. They thought about it. I, you know, I even, you know, there were times where I even told them, you're not the only one who's ran from me. A lot of women have. And I had to call out to them kindly to reassure them and assure them. I remember saying that to them. And there were times where women, some women who, when they first heard about me, they would see me and run to the other side of the street or quickly cross the other side of the street. Or if we were on the same sidewalk, they would try to get in their cars and go and, and they would try to drive off and I would pursue them and I'd be like, I want to talk to you. Or if they would cross the side of the street, whether through running and through walking, I would call out to them and they would all come to me because I didn't yell at them abusively. It was more like a, I want to, hey, how you doing? Talk to me. It was a friendly yell. And they were shocked, but they were looking at me like, so they got out their cars and walked to me or sometimes would run to me because they're like, oh, wow. I never heard a guy yell at me so sweet. So they would run to me in excitement. They would lose their fear quickly. And they and if they were running and walking in terms of trying to cross the street real fast as I walk, I'd be like, ma'am. But I would say it so not like a not like a rude booming voice, but in a pleasant booming voice that made them go, Hey, I wanna talk to him kind of thing. So they would run to me and walk to me. And so um, that's how I was able to have women help me to correct my reputation. So a lot of times people in the streets were very careful about what they said about me because if they heard any crime boss narratives about Antonio, the street women was like, we will fuck up anybody that keeps spreading these rumors about you so if you talked about me you had to be very careful the street women wasn't having it was understood these these sisters are not playing they serious about their antonio so that's what happened to me at that time it was just it horrified me to have people put fear in women's hearts about me that's what was grotesque and deplorable to me. Those are actually vocabulary words in my conscious vocabulary off the top of my head. So far, I haven't used my Webster's. I may or may not necessarily, it just depends on the flow. But I'm doing something different. So I remember um, throughout this whole, um, that whole ordeal was just very rough for me and um, I remember when it came to women who were engaging in street prostitution 
I uh, I did try my best to safeguard them, and usually I was successful in that. What I mean is that I didn't let just anybody and everybody talk to them. Because, as you know, I was considered the nice pimp, I had to make sure whoever they were talking to were respectful and didn't have a it didn't have a it didn't have any um irreversible criminal records so i had to check their backgrounds you know because i would ask about these people and they would tell me whether so and so had a record or not i'm talking about people who actually knew them and if they had a criminal record, I'm talking about felonies and stuff, I wouldn't let them have sex with the women who are engaging in street prostitution. Um, because a felony usually meant you might be capable of hitting her or insulting her or raping her. So... People with misdemeanors in the crime world usually did not hit, insult, rape people. But people with felonies in the crime world usually did all those things. So if they had a misdemeanor that and the and the, and the misdemeanor was something that was reversible and they didn't have a violent reputation. They didn't have an abusive reputation, didn't have a rapist reputation. Then I was like, okay, you can be with that, that you can be with these men. Now, some of the women that were engaging in street prostitution were LGBT quite plus people. So I would check their records saying that the majority of the women engaged in street prostitution were cisgender heterosexual women. They were cis hetero women. But um, some of the women engaged in street prostitution were um, transgender women. Some were bisexual women. Some were lesbian women. So I let them pick the reputable clients of their choosing. Same sex, opposite sex, as it's commonly called today. And... um, None of this made me LGBTQI+. I just want to set that on the record. Um, But, yeah, did I ever see the, the street prostitution type of sex between all my clients? The majority of the time, no. I would pick a, a safe location for them to have their street prostitution sex, but I wouldn't be around when it happened. Um, Very rarely did I ever see it. Like, when it was time for me to come back to their location, they would just be finished having their sex, so I would see some things. I would see a little bit of the vaginal sex, a little bit of the anal sex, a little bit of the... Um, oral sex, a little bit of the sex positions they would do, a little bit of the sex acts they would do, just a little bit, because they were wrapping up, and when, you know, maybe wrapping up, finishing the sex meant, okay, there's maybe 10 to 5 more minutes, but because they were really into each other like that, they would sometimes be in and out of positions as if there's no tomorrow, in and out of doing sex acts out of tomorrow, like there's no tomorrow. So I would see a variety of their sex, very little, very little, like in splits in a slightly more than split second short bursts. It's like, okay, I saw glimpses and pieces, but for the most part, I wouldn't, I wouldn't usually never see the full blown sex. Maybe I saw the full blown sex at the same amount of, this I can count on my hands, and some people would not believe me, but it's true. When they would have their sex, because they were in a safe location, usually I would be 
in a criminal hangout spot just chilling with other criminals and I would just be chilling with people in the street because I knew that, okay, you're with this client, so y'all going to be just fine. I don't need to watch y'all. But I would usually be with other people talking and um, when, you know, they told me when they would be done, I would come back and they would already be fully clothed. They would already been paid. They would show me the money and they would they would give me a little bit of money, take most of the money because that was our arrangement, as I said in previous episodes. I told them the only way that I was going to take y'all money is if you give me a if you if you insist that you give me a little bit of the money, you have to take most of the money. That's the only way I'm going to be your pimp and accept payment f- from you and have you accept payment for yourself because in the beginning, like I said in um, one of the episodes that I told them, okay, I will have you take all the money, I'll just manage you. But they insisted that not happen. So I said, okay, you want me to have a little bit of the money? That means you get to keep most of the money, and they were cool with that. So that's why. But sometimes... They, you know, how I would see full-blown sex, like if they felt like, but I need you nearby. Some of the clients were like, some of the times the clients felt like, but if I, if I know you're nearby, then I know that you're safe. I know that I'm safe. I know that you're safe. So most of the clients were like, oh, you can go, you know, to another spot, you know, and be other people. And, you know, I'll just tell you, be done when I when me and my client are finished. So I would leave and then come back. But uh, I remember a handful of the clients were like, I need you to stay. And I told them, I don't want to watch you. I know. No, you do your business, and I come back. I don't want to see you naked. I'm not saying you're ugly. I just don't want to see y'all naked. I'm not saying y'all. I'm not saying y'all ugly. I just don't want to see y'all have sex and do all that. But they were so into. But I, when you're around, I feel safe. I'm like, don't you think it's weird to be naked at sex in front of your pimp? And they were like, with other pimps, yes. With you, I, you know, I don't feel that. Because I know you're not judgmental. You're not a blabbermouth. So I saw my, I only saw maybe four, maybe five or six of my clients. At least six times. At least five to six times. That I've seen them have full-blown sex. And I would not be very obvious being seen like my client could see my, my you know, the women, five-sixties women were engaged in street prostitution. They would see me, but their client couldn't see me because I was, I would peer through. It's kind of like, um... Somebody who has like a peephole and they would go into like a room. So I would stand by the door in a peephole way. And if people came by, I would just, you know, act like I'm a worker there or one of the workers kids. I would pretend. But then usually people were outside the peephole by the door. They weren't by the door. So I would peep through the door or peep through the bushes or, you know, you know, have my head and have my eyes to the alley. But my, but for the most part was visibly seen. I would just look through in that kind of way. But the client, you know, the clients will see me. Um, let me put it this way. Most of the time, the clients wouldn't see me. They would see me a little towards the end 
like five to ten minutes in, I would be suddenly visible. And they'll go, oh, he's my, that's my pimp. You know, he's just, he's just making sure we're safe. So sometimes they would look at me while they would have their sex. But for the most part, they didn't like occasionally glance. But this was towards the end of the sex, the beginning of the sex, the client and the women who are doing street prostitution wouldn't wouldn't really look at me. Towards the end, they were kind of like, oh, okay, that's just the pimp making sure that we're safe and that no one's going to come interrupt us and we don't have any legal problems, that type of thing. And their clients were cool with me because, again, I did not give them any venom, so they didn't give me any venom. Usually in the crime, well, that's how it works. If you don't give out venom, you don't get venom back. If you don't dish out vitriol, vitriol will not be returned to you for the most part. There are exceptions to that rule, and it sucks, fatally speaking, violently speaking, um, theftly speaking. But um, I do remember those kind of things happening. Now, um, I'm trying to remember anything else that happened in that world. Um, I dare say my very last memory of my crime world life was, um, well, crime world against my will was, was living in a world where, um, I just remember a lot of times and it's hard for me to say it that's why I'm taking so long to say it um hanging around the sex workers at that time It made me feel like this profound shamefulness in my soul because I wasn't ashamed of the sex workers. I felt like I was failing my grandma Claire miserably because I didn't like the con I never liked the concept of owning women and having females as chattel. That's how it felt being in that world. But I remember the sex workers constantly assuring that you're not owning me. You have my permission to manage me. And they were like, well, I ain't your chattel. You know, we're in this together. In terms of our business agreement, plus, you know, they said, you know, you're my best friend. We're best friends who can do business well together. That's what they said. And um, I had mixed feelings because it's like, well, at least they're saying these things to me. And at the same time, I felt like, but I'm five. And this feels like a gut a heart punch you know so I'm not trying to claim that I was as prominent in the pimp world as Bishop Magic Don Juan I would never diss the guy um I'm not even competing with him I'm not trying to say I was as prominent sex world as Iceberg Slim, 
Um, in fact, one of my street names as a pimp was I was I was known as Sweet. I was known as Sweet Daddy T. Sweet Daddy Tony or Sweet Daddy T. Because that's the way of saying he's, or they would call me the Pleasant Pimp, or, you know, they would call me um, Niceberg Slim. You know how the Pimp Iceberg Slim? They would call me Niceberg Slim because, oh, you know. He's, he's the kind of pimp that don't insult women. He doesn't rape women. He doesn't beat women. He doesn't impregnate women. He doesn't control women. So, women liked... Some women liked being on the quote-unquote hoe straw, as they called it, when it came to me, because I let them run everything, and I would just look out for them. That's how it was. We, I never cracked mean jokes at all when it came to them. I never bullied them. They never, you know, how they treated me, we kept, you know, we um, kept our hands off each other. We didn't verbally insult each other. We didn't beat each other. We didn't hit each other. We didn't rape each other. We didn't, you know... In our in our minds, we're not controlling each other at the time. Um, so I was Niceberg Slim, and some of these these were the type of street names that the criminals actually liked. They're like, you can call him that because it's not insulting. Niceberg Slim, because I'm five years old, I'm not a big kid, and Niceberg. Okay, you talking about how compassionate he is? We like that. So those were the street names that stuck. The women were like, you know what, I like those names. Even women who weren't a part of the street life, they're like, I like that y'all call him that. I'm going to call him that too. Because I had a cute and cuddly personality towards women, so they would call me those names too. I'm five. These are grown women calling me these names. And um, I just really, really remember that happening just quite frequently every time I was around them. And, um, that's the last memory I have of me in the crime world. Officially, I think every story about me in the crime world has been told. I know I said that many times, but this time is different because I don't feel incomplete like I did when I was doing the other episodes. I was always feeling like I was missing some memory. Now I feel this total rest in my soul. That's how I know I have no more crime stories to share because they've all been told. Every crime experience I've had has all been shared. Now let's talk about... um, my young adult, early young adulthood. Well, when I was with sex workers as a undergraduate in school, um, late teens, early 20s, you know, there were times where I, on occasion, I would spend the night with the brothel workers at their homes And, you know, we had more sex because it was their homes. And, um, I just remember, um, you know, they would feed me, cook for me, clean for me. I insisted on doing all those things, but they wouldn't have it any other way. So I let it go. 
And um, we'll just eat, talk, laugh, joke, have philosophical dialogue. As, and, um, and then for the most part, it was, we just had sex. And they were, very, and they were neat freaks. And, you know, we, you know, I, I am, I was a neat freak too. We were all hygienic. We all did personal grooming and we all did personal care products. Um, and, um, their house, their, some had apartments, some actual houses. And so I remember just staying in some of them on occasion and it was just fun. You know, it felt like fun at the time, um, just being there and, um, I think we had to keep doing laundry because we kept having sex. And, um, you know, we, you know, we did do, we would be each other's foot massagers, like foot massagers, erotic massagers. We would have erotic bubble baths and sensual showers. I mean, there are times we had intercourse in the showers as well as the bubble baths. Um, oftentimes, we, you know, we would read books to each other, watch movies together, and um, I remember that um, We would also play card games like Uno. We would play like Connect Four, that type of stuff. And I remember um, we would dissect what we saw in the news, that type of thing. And um, what I also remember at that time was, uh, you know, we would also cry tears of joy together because we really enjoyed each other. And other times we would um, clean each other's faces up with Kleenex, Kleenex you know, uh, uh, tissue, Kleenex, I mean to say, you know, that's what I call it, Kleenex. And um, we would... Um, because sometimes we had to talk about painful things from our past. We would hug each other, console each other. Sometimes that led to um, lovemaking because we were showing so much sensual compassion that way and console and comfort each other that we just went for each other on the spot and um, Sometimes when we were crying tears of joy and celebrating and dancing, playing music together, that we would just have ecstatic sex. Other other times we had tears of joy, tears of depression, there was no sex. It was just, I just want to comfort you without sex. I just want to comfort you without kissing. Uh, Sometimes we did comfort each other with kissing and sex, and other times we didn't do both, even when it was comforting each other. So I remember being in their homes like that, and they were always nice to me. I was nice to them. And um, they would show me their rooms, and um, we would have sex in every room of their homes. And we would have sex in every part of their homes, too. Um... I remember at that time where um, sometimes they'll have me over in their home, not that sex, but they just wanted to not be alone that night.
What I mean to say is that just um, being with them, you know, when we would comfort each other, we would just, um, because we were both sapiosexuals at the time, we would bring out, it could be geographical facts, historical facts, mathematical facts, ideological facts, theological facts, health facts, any kind of intellectually stimulating facts, we would mention them to each other outside of sex and we were having sex and it was turn-ons for each other either way. Um... And I felt like at the time, you know, um, that um, overall, I used to do that with other women that weren't sex workers go to their home apartments and homes and sex every aspect of their home but the women would talk would um have me in their homes more for just to keep me company more than the sex so we spent more time Engaging in spiritual intimacy, intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy, and interpersonal intimacy, and social intimacy more than physical intimacy, more than physical intimacy and sexual intimacy. Um, so I remember you know the um, sugar mama part let me give you the last details on that um the type of so so me and the sugar mamas um we had yeah they um helped pay for like basically meals and stuff for me and like I told you earlier yeah they um would just give me money sometimes that's pretty much what we had but most of our relationship wasn't transactional it was conversational um it was built upon humor it was built upon shared interests. We would do our favorite hobbies together, you know, bike riding sometimes, um, the beach sometimes. Um, They like to play sports. So we play basketball with each other sometimes or baseball with each other sometimes or softball or football or run track on track fields together sometimes. And I remember that... um, Yes, we did have a sex, had a sexual relationship with all the, the sugar mamas um, in their homes, apartments, like the other women. In every part of their homes, too, there was sex, but, um, between me and them. But, um, we, we, we mostly just had a, we, we went bowling together sometimes, and, uh, we just went walking in the park together sometimes. We just did that kind of stuff. And, um, we, um, always had intellectual banters between each other because, um, they were sapiophiles. That was one, too. And, um, it was kind of a relationship where we were just bearing our souls to each other. Um, 
And that was about what we did. I remember with the women and myself at that time, I had the most sex with older women and the least amount of sex with young adult women. So... I feel like at that time, um, I remember at that time we just had a um, relationship where we confided in each other about traumas of the past and helping each other sort it out to the best of our ability. Um, We did our best not to do spiritual bleeding or trauma dumping. We were very sensitive to that. Um, From what I remember, I had the most sex with single women. And I had the least amount of sex with women that were in committed relationships, whether it was marriage or domestic partnerships or cohabitation, or they were a couple, but they were unmarried, committed couple. And those are the tr- those are the the truths of my some of the truths of my life. And uh, last thing I'll say is that um, I told you before that the women pursued me more than I pursued the women I also say this that the women also were the main ones that were telling other women about me. I never told other men about them, partly because I didn't want other men to have a chance with them. And mostly it's not my style to be braggadocious. I mean, some, you know, I remember, and I said that before, but new, new, new details as I wrap up. So in that situation, it was like me being the person that other women would tell the women in their lives about my intelligence, my dictionary verbiage, my soothing medium voice that was orgasmic to them they would talk about well he's nearly six feet they would talk about my caramel complexion my athletic lean build they would talk about my physical strength prowess and it would they didn't just talk to the women sexually about me they would talk to them about pretty much everything about me, you know, all my gifts and giftings and all my talents, abilities, capabilities, and my strengths and my pluses as a person. So they would talk more to them about the kind of heart I had more than the parts that I have. So that was a big contributor to um, women's trying to have as much sex with me as many times as they possibly could. And this is my last thing I put up. So basically, the reason why they, the biggest reason why they pursued me was because I wasn't even trying to pursue them. They were the type of women that if a guy really wasn't checking for them, thinking about them, trying to holler and trying to get with them, 
it made the guy that wasn't doing any of those things, it made that person like, oh, he's trying to play hard to get, or, oh, he's not like other guys. He's doing his own thing, minding his own business. I want to be the one that comes after him and holler at him, trying to give him some. So that's what happened. And I did that mostly because of trauma. And I didn't know how to approach a woman confidently, you know, from a standpoint of I being comfortable. Because what I saw growing up, men approaching women tended to be misogynistic. And that caused misandry for some women to feel. It was just a difficult experience for me. Um, I did approach them despite the trauma, but we had a range where you approach me when I approach you. So the women, they were talking women, they liked, wow, he's not even trying to fuck me. That's what they would say. So I'm going to try to fuck him. That's how they felt about me. And because I wouldn't normally talk about sex or romance or anything physical, they would go, I want to know what he thinks about this. Oh, he's not even checking me out. Or if he is, he's not being obvious about it. I'm a move sexually and physically in a way where he can't help but notice me. I want to see it. So they would do that to me all the time. So... It, their attraction kept growing for me because I never behaved verbally and non-verbally like other guys would. That concludes all these parts of the past.